Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello and welcome to this next episode of Canine's Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. I hope everybody's having a great 2021 so far. We are almost done with our first month here uh, and into February. I wanted to take a moment and just kind of cover everything that's going on uh, detection-wise and uh, even some cognition stuff. I had a lot of great feedback from everybody on my episode with Don Blair. Uh, Don and I, like we talked about, will be having a webinar coming up. Um, As soon as Don and I can hammer out uh, a date coming up, he's had some uh, things going on with his schedule and... Uh, we just got to get through that. And as soon as we have that up and running, you will see that in all the social media feeds and you guys will be able to sign up and join us for that webinar. Outside of that, we have some upcoming schools here at Ford Canine and the 15th of February starts our next basic handler school as well as our canine manager and instructor course. Uh, So those that are looking or that manage a canine program or that are progressing up the food chain, for lack of a better term, in their canine career and will be uh, looking or needing to instruct people and uh, handlers and dogs, you can attend our canine manager and instructor course. That is February 15th, and you can sign up for that on FordCanine.com. For those in the sport world, we have our... CSDT, our Canine Sport Detection Dog Training Class Level 1. That will be March 22nd through the 26th, and that is currently on sale right now, 10% off. Again, go to FordK9.com, click on the event or the class itself, and you can sign up for it. I get asked a lot of times where I'm going to be, where's the next seminar that's not in Las Vegas, that's out and about. Go to the website, go down to the calendar at the bottom of the classes and seminars page and scroll through the calendar and you will see the various locations of where I will be at. Keep an eye out. Some of the seminars have been sold out. I am trying to keep that updated so that way you guys can save uh, reaching out to that event host only to find out that the seminar has already been sold out. Everything else kind of up and coming. I um, just kind of want to touch on the 
you know, industry in general. Uh, one of the things that, you know, comes up often is all of our great likenesses. Those of us that love doing detection dogs, we all share a lot of the same passions. We also have differences. You know, that's one of the best things is we all don't do things the same way. By having diversity in what we do, there's the ability to work with those dogs in front of us that are also very different. So I want to, you know, kind of celebrate the fact that, you know, the way I do it is not the way to do it. The way somebody else does it is not necessarily the way to do it. If it works for you and your dog, that's what matters. And I think sometimes we kind of get in those keyboard battles on social media with uh, various passions for our beliefs uh, some of the things that we really want to emphasize a point or our experience. Uh, I'm not trying to turn it into a kumbaya moment, but we should also look at what can we do by supporting each other about those differences and how we can be respectful, but also understanding that, hey, for how that person does it, is very useful. What they've learned through their experience might help you when you encounter a dog or a handler with that type of uh, personality or that type of motivation or behaviors and so forth. So I use my platforms, uh, the Canines Talking Sense Facebook group. If you're not a member of that, go find it on Facebook. Um, most, it's pretty easy to join it. If not, it'll just give me a request and I'll approve it. It's a forum where we can discuss, uh, you can post questions, you can post, you know, something that you're working on, uh, share some great things you're doing with your dog. And again, you know, if you're wanting some information, don't hesitate to ask the group. You know, I know sometimes people feel like it's dropping a piece of meat into a piranha pool, depending on the subject matter, but we should also just be willing to set aside some of those things that we're really, you know, I would say set in stone on and and sit back and go, all right, I'm willing to take that in consideration or, hey, I know so-and-so mentioned this, but also here's something that I've done and I've been through because again, collectively, we can and work really well together. So, which leads me to this episode. This episode is a friend of mine. We have been friends for, gosh, I know we're getting close to 20 years if we're not already at that. The funny part is I sold dogs to him a few times way back in the day. And now turn around, I'm buying dogs from him off and on these days. He has a uh, extensive background, military law enforcement, has traveled the world, uh, and is a really, really knowledgeable guy. And with that said, I will kick off this episode. Again, everybody, thank you for your support. Please share, like, leave a review about the podcast on whatever podcast format you use. The audience is growing. If you want to support the show, I now have the means on the online store that you can go on and buy various canines, talking sense things, hats, shirts, and so forth. So thank you again for your support. And again, anytime you have questions, please feel free to email me 
Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D, K-Number-9.com. So Cameron at Ford K-9. Send me your questions, uh, send me your ideas, things you want to talk about or hear about on the show. And without further ado, on to the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. This is the second episode of Season 3 in our brand new year of 2021, just getting out of the holidays. And I wanted to do an interview with somebody that uh, has been a friend of mine for a long time. We've known each other. We're getting close into the 20-year range now. Um, And uh, let him kind of share information with all of you guys with the wealth of knowledge that he has. So with that, you know, level of description, <laughs> Ken, welcome to the show, Ken Pavlik, who is the uh, uh, owner and co-owner of Pacific uh, Canine, Pacific Coast Canine. And Ken, just let everybody know your background and what you do and how you got to where you are today. Oh, well, thanks, Cameron. I appreciate you having me on. Um, as you said, I currently co-own Pacific Coast Canine. Uh, with my wife, Laura Griffith. We're located in Custer, Washington, which is six miles from the Canadian border and six miles from the Pacific Ocean in the far northwest corner of the United States. We're approximately two hours north of uh, Seattle. And the focus of our business is detection dogs, specifically single-purpose detection dogs. Going back in time, I first uh, became a canine handler back in 1982 when I enlisted in the United States Air Force. And I was a patrol dog handler, an explosive dog handler, a narcotics dog handler. And uh, the last job I had in the Air Force before I separated voluntarily was I was the trainer and supervisor for the detector dog unit at Clark Air Base. I think we had approximately 22 dual-purpose and single-purpose narc dogs and seven bomb dogs. Um, When I separated in 1986, I went to work for the Riverside County Sheriff's Department in southern california as a patrol deputy worked approximately two years as a patrol deputy and then in late 1989 i got a canine handler position and i went to adlerhorst international they're in riverside california we're both my patrol dog school and a narc dog school um in fact dave reaver taught my patrol dog school i believe i'm like class 15 or class 16 and every time i go back there now and there's a 200 number classes it's interesting to see how far things have come oh yeah Uh, at that same time, I did some training with Pat Belt out in Palm Springs Police Department. I did some training with Danny Lamaster and worked part-time for him training dogs at Master K9, which is uh, no longer in business due to Danny's death several years ago. Um, along the way, I went through Utah Post to the judge program for both patrol and narcotics. So I ran my dual-purpose Malinois out in the desert in Indio, California from 89 to 94. In 94, I went back to Idaho, where I had lived when I joined the Air Force, to the Sheriff's Department, and I planned on having nothing to do with running the dog anymore. I was tired of running a dual-purpose dog and being on the SWAT team with the dog. And I just wanted to be a cop again, but this sheriff asked me if I would start a dog program for them since they had none. And so I brought my retired Malinois and started a program, and through the years from 94 to 2003, I grew the pro- my program to 15 dogs and handlers, 10 of them single-purpose, five dual-purpose. Um, I trained a bunch of dogs for other agencies throughout Idaho. And then in 2003, I left full-time law enforcement, moved here to Washington State, and started Pacific Coast Canine. Um, 
initially I had wanted to do just like a lot of patrol dog stuff, but um, things led me in a different direction and we kind of specialize in fluffier dogs or sporting breed dogs. We'll do Malinois and Shepherds, but um, I don't do bite dogs anymore pretty much because I'm old and broken. <laughs> that pretty much brings us to where we are today. We place about 95 to 100 dogs a year, some as high as 120. Some go green, some go partially trained, some go full trained. We do handler classes, and that pretty much sums up what we do. Yeah, and again, for those who don't know your wife, you know, what did uh, Laura do, and what was how did you guys come together and and you know create Pacific Coast Canine? Um, actually, Laura, well, when I met her, she was a single purpose narcotic detector dog handler at Vancouver International Airport for Canada Customs, which is now Canada Border Services Agency. When we started dating, um, and so I left full-time law enforcement to move closer to to her. And at just about that same time, she had dual citizenship from birth, so she had crossed over to United States Customs, and she worked there for a number of years on the border. And then she worked, I think, seven or eight years as a marine interdiction agent running boats up here in the Pacific Northwest for CBP. And then the growth of the business just got so big, we needed to, she was doing that part-time with, with the business and then still working in her full-time law enforcement career. Love, gave it up to start the business, to help run the business full-time. There we are. <laughs> yeah, you and, and you guys obviously having, uh, you know, working dog backgrounds to, you know, in this day and age, you know, finding a business where, both, you know, husband and wife have extensive experience working with dogs is not something commonly found. Um, and, you know, obviously you guys shared the passion for the detection aspect. Um, you know, and that's kind of how you and I we first contacted each other, came in contact with each other was years ago, back when I had my business in Florida. Uh, we just were, you know, getting, buying dogs from each other kind of thing. And, um, you know, you fast forward all these years and here we both are kind of specialized uh, in the detection realm more so than the patrol realm. Like we said, both of us have backgrounds in that. But uh, like you, for me, detection was, you know, I, you know, I've done a lot of stuff uh, slash seen a lot of stuff on the patrol dog side and it's fun and it's unique and it's got some challenges but for me, detection was always more fun in the sense of it required, it was way more to me of a challenge to problem solve something, to find how something might be concealed, hidden, whatever the way it was, depending on kind of the dog I was working, drug, bomb, et cetera. Um, you know, we used to play, you know, beat the bomber games as in training back in Florida. Um, but, you know, for me, the, the excitement or the fun was how much or how intricate detection dog can be. How about for you? Like, what did you, uh, what was it you found that was the appealing part to kind of really focus in on detection? Um, I think a lot of it was just the nature of the work where I was in 89 through 94, working uh, along Interstate 10, 86 miles north of the Mexican border. Um, I was in a patrol area, 1,400 square miles, and the only drug dog in the area so i spent the vast majority of my time doing drug work rather than patrol work um yeah i did patrol work we found we tracked a lot of people we found a lot of bad guys we put bad guys in jail but the volume of my work was drug related um several of the other neighboring agencies they had single purpose patrol dogs so i was supplementing 
all the time for Border Patrol, for DEA, for the FBI. We had our street level task forces. We had our major major narc units. I just did more dope work than anything else, and I kind of trended towards that. And this is the same time Joe David was handling a dog for CHP, and the start of Desert Snow was just starting out. And you know, I'd see Joe every month at the kennels, and we trained together for dope work. And it just kind of branched out from there, and that led to where I am. Plus, um, you know, I really find the the dope work is is interesting more so than chasing bad guys and chasing humans. I I enjoyed that, but figuring out odor and where it goes and how it moves and conditions that affect it and the science, a lot of the science behind it, just was naturally appealing to me. Yeah, yeah. and and that's what you know, obviously we've been at this for a while ourselves, but what have you seen as some of the major changes slash shifts in detection uh, from obviously back in the, let's say, 90s to where we are today? What is some of the biggest things that you're seeing change? Both, let's, we'll start off with the good side of it, and then what we've seen that's also part of uh, some of the negative changes that have started happening as well. Oh, well, a lot, of, a lot of big changes. One's the quality of the dogs is so much better than it was in the early 80s. Um, the quality of dogs that, you know, I saw through the military to where they are now for civilian law enforcement sizes is, is huge. Um, the training technology has changed massively. Um, I don't think I trained very much like I did five years ago, let alone 15 years ago, let alone 30 years ago. Um, there's still elements from those times past that apply um but you know what i think i've seen now and you and i've had brief discussions on is sometimes the pendulum shifts a little too far um you know back in the old day well, i hate to say the old days but you know 30 years ago everything was was blocking and dog goes where i lead and he doesn't he goes where i tell him to go the only sniffs where i want him to sniff to where we've gotten more independence and letting the dog's natural hunting ability come out um, we're selecting dogs based on actors rather than theories um for want of a better word um and i think that's but then at the same time i sometimes now teach the seminars it seems like the pendulum swung a little bit too far and we have so much reliance on just let the dog do what it does by itself and figure things out by itself and sometimes i'm in the training realm that's all well and good but i think in an operational environment it's not the most efficient way to get things done yeah, no, it and you know, obviously like you brought up there, a lot of the beginning days for me too were just like you said, we block the dog, the dog has to we basically we walk backwards in front of the dog, detailing or presenting numerous areas throughout whatever it is we're searching. The dog doesn't have the freedom to range to anything until we take it there, uh, to today where a lot of times and this happens a lot in the sport dog world where this this is the other extreme where they refuse to use any type of presentations at all. It's just go where the dog goes. And we can't go, that's that's a trend that we don't want to go too far and rely only on that. So, you know, it's it's kind of unique, um, you know, watching, because obviously back in, the, you know, not until recently, there wasn't even a sport dog uh, program out there. And, you know, I get. I just actually got done judging a uh, sport dog competition here recently, and that would probably be the number one thing I saw was just the blindly following the dog wherever it wants to go, 
And by doing so, you kind of lose track of where you've been, what the dog actually sniffed. And then lo and behold, before you know it, you know, in the competition world, the times run out and they've missed half an area. Um, so the happy medium is, you know, a methodology where we let the dogs kind of search and do what they need to do, but also realize that we are a team. Um, there's the, uh, and I'll let you bring this up here in a second, the uh, pillars of a uh, detection dog team that'll help you be successful in potentially locating whatever is hidden within your environment. So I'll let you kind of talk about those pillars that we had spoke about that one time at a, at a conference in Reno. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if I remember exact pillars, but I want to take where you're going from is it's our job to recognize where the dog needs to be to access odor and the dog might not figure that out on his own. Now, through enough repetitions and training and experience and replicating past successes, he learns to search those a lot of those productive areas, but not necessarily always. And if he can't access the odor, he can't find the odor. So our job is to guide him to those productive places that the dog as an animal might not perceive as a productive place. Um, behind objects, on top of objects, underneath objects, not only inside objects. All those things can give access to odor that he might not be able to get just by himself. Um, you know, the other thing is we we select dogs for their capability to hunt. So yes, we need to just let them do their thing, not be overbearing and overpowering. But there's a time and a place that might be necessary. Um, you know, one thing we do here is we, I always start new handlers on leash. And they have to be competent handling with leash handling skills and directing and on leash before we allow them to go off leash. Because I think it's much harder for someone that was trained to just cut the dog loose and stand back and let him work. And then when the time comes to have to guide him on a leash, it's hard to go from off leash to on leash. But I find it's easier for them to go on leash to off leash. Um, and that's a very important skill that I think sometimes based on the science that's coming out of just, we just stand back and we let the dog solve the problem by itself. And when it eventually gets there, I think there has to be a, a meeting of it too, a blending as you, if you will. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No. And, and, you know, maybe you'll be impressed by this, but I saved my notes from that day that we actually talked, which was <laughs> 10, I'm three, impressed. 19. And it was the, uh, I wrote down four P's pattern, pace, presentation, and participation. And you, me, and uh, Andy Wyman were just kind of, you know, you know, shooting the breeze in between handlers running. And we got talking about that because of basically our conversation right now. What we have been seeing is uh, there was lack of patterns. You know, like, I talked, like we talked about a second ago, there was no pattern at all. And we're not saying you have to have like a this, but you need to come into your search with a strategy of how you plan on searching that area, whatever it is. Um, and then the pace, the pace does have to have, it's like, as we always joke around, like a dance, you know, you have to go just as fast as what the dog needs, but not so fast that that dog isn't efficient at searching its space. So kind of, again, whether it be professionals or the sport world, I've seen, uh, some cases where they just kind of go at the dog's pace and the dog blows by half the, you know, space, especially in the beginning area. Um, so they, their paces doesn't really match or the handler is going so slow that the dog, you know, kind of grows frustrated with the pace of the handler and then starts offering behaviors, 
either same or similar to what an indication might be for them. And then, like we already just mentioned, the presentation part of it where uh, at, you know, back earlier in time, there was way too much presentation. Now there's way too little because there'll be very good productive locations within that search area that don't get sniffed because the handler thought process was, well, my dog didn't take me there. Therefore, I don't need to worry about it. We all don't, yeah, we don't have goggles or, you know, and that's one of the things I got coming out as a, as a joke product, but as a, uh, one of the decals, it says I have, it says scent goggles because I can see odor. Uh, just to make a, a, a tongue in cheek remark for people to, you know, have fun with that one. But, um, but they, but they, they won't present or they, they assume that because the dog walked near it and they, the dog didn't smell anything, there must be nothing there. No, there's, uh, you know, uh, very important that we do ensure the dog does sniff a uh, productive area, something that leads to potential odor leaking out or being concealed within. Part yeah, um, two, the hardest part of the biggest error that I've seen through the years with, you know, guys that I've trained or guys that are judging competitions or teaching at seminars is, you know, the dog and the human will always take the path of least resistance and they don't necessarily run 90 degree angles and squaring corners and going behind objects and under objects. And it's your job to make sure to hit those appropriate angles that give the dog the greatest access. If you just run around a room and let the dog go, he's never going to, unless you spend a lot of time training your dog on 90 degree corners, he's not going to go all the way to the corner and turn. He's going to round off the corner. He's going to cut around the sides of couches. Um, you know, and I routinely tell my guys, you don't beat the hand. You don't beat the dog, you beat the handlers. So you put stuff low, you put stuff behind stuff, you put stuff underneath stuff where the guy's got to bend over and up and down and stretch. It's the same thing with a tracking dog. You don't break the dog. The dog will track forever. You break down the handler, right? We jump fences, we swim rivers, we climb through blackberries. Um, and so the human has to learn that I have to do those things that the dog see things that the dog doesn't necessarily see, if that makes sense to you. Oh, absolutely. And uh, a lot of things are very linear to a dog. So like you said, the dog may not search the thing in a three-dimensional aspect. They just go by the line. So let's just say like you just brought up the sofa and the wall. The sofa's against the wall, so the dog goes down and then just goes basically the width of the sofa, never really gets close or goes in the corner where the sofa meets the wall. And the odor is coming out or maybe it's down low in that corner, but because the dog cut the corner you know, went from the sofa back to the wall and never went into that location where the sofa touches the wall and they missed that. So, and then that was a really good example of, you know, it's kind of the same thing I saw too. Uh, I'll use the competition again. There was a small like fake rock against the wall and it was the only thing there. So it was a pretty obvious thing, but just how either the wind was moving or the off gassing of the target material just wasn't pushing out a lot. So some dogs just going down the wall never really sniffed the rock at all. They just went right on by it. So the handlers made the assumption, well, the dog didn't slow down, sniff, or do whatever. It must be nothing there. And a vast majority of them missed that thing only because they did not want to make a presentation uh, or do something, whatever their method would be, to have that dog check it. So... Um, it, it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, our job, which goes in that fourth P, which is participation, 
the participation part is we have to work together with our dogs. We are that interpreter of that tool, which is that dog, that really fancy four-legged furry device that we have that tells us uh, as best it can when there's a, a odor from a substance within whatever space we're searching. Uh, but a lot of time, just like you said a second ago, uh, I've done this, I can't tell you how many times, but as a trainer, if I can fool the handler, then I've won, you know, because the if I can get the handler not to believe what their dog is telling them or trust the dog to go do this further or, you know, the best one or common one is, you know, a hide at a garbage can, you know, nine times out of 10, especially newer handlers will go, my dog's going for garbage. I don't want my dog to go there. Well, then they restrict the dog from going to that area, investigating it. And lo and behold, hey, there actually has to be substance there. But, uh, you know, the the importance of that participation and working together. And I think obviously you have quite a bit of experience with that, with, with doing the narcotics interdiction that you did from the past. Yeah. And then a lot of it is just being exposing to all those kinds of things. Um, you know, I've had my dogs at my age find a pound of marijuana and a 40 pound bag of open dog food on the backseat of a car. Um, you know, we've gotten mess out of cheeseburgers when the guys go they go through the burger king drive-through and you stop them they stuff the dope in with the french fries and the food and if you don't train for those things and you see the dogs going for it you immediately think oh wait there's food but if i expose myself to as many of those things as possible then i can interpret accurately what they're telling us um you know like we like to explain things here that are it makes sense to me that we see the world in better three-dimensional concepts than i think a dog does of course i'm not a research scientists and I can't count if they're two more two-dimensional or three-dimensional than we are, but I, I think we see things more three-dimensional than they do. Um, and I know you've seen, like I have the context of taking the dog from searching something vertical to a horizontal plane, or if you initially imprint on a horizontal and now you go to a vertical plane, it, it can, can be confusing for them. So if, if we can get him to access the four places where we can hide something on top, underneath, inside, and behind, if we can cover the most of those angles with the least amount of work on our part, we've given him the greatest access to the oak, which goes back to, you know, square and corners, going high, going low. And knowing that, okay, he got close enough there, but he should have got close enough here and recognizing that for what it is. Um, but, and to go back to the four P's, I have to give Andy Wyman credit for, we said, the three of us sat around having a discussion about these very things, and I think he's the one that said, oh, four Ps, this is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, absolutely it, it, true. I, I couldn't remember which one of you brought it up as four Ps, but I know it was all three of us sitting there, and it kind of yeah. came to fruition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give Andy credit. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it, and he's articulate like that and has a good, you know, because obviously just like us, he, he does the uh, teaching circuits too, so – um, but yeah, the, the pattern is the pattern is huge. It's the most efficient way to do it. It's not efficient to just stand there and hope that the dog will stumble across odor haphazardly by himself. And this conversation came about because we were searching a very small area, um, you know, a, a ten by four foot wide bell counter in the hotel lobby with some meth on a bottom shelf. And the vast majority of the people just cut the dog loose and let him run and let him run and let him run. And when they didn't get anything, oh, I'm out of here. But Okay, you didn't see the dog didn't go low in certain places where he needed to go low. He didn't go high where he needed to go high, and so you have to go back and drive into those locations. Yep. And that's what started a lot of this. Absolutely. And it leads to this next question. How important uh, is fundamentals when it comes to 
working and training a dog. And this is even this kind of really, I'm putting this on teams that have already, let's say, got, got their dog, gone through training, are now out working, whether it be the professional and or the sport person. How important is it, uh, and from your experience, to ensure that you spend time working on the fundamentals and what do you view as the fundamentals? Uh, just half of that is those four P's pace is super important. Like, you know, you brought up, if you're going too slow, you're boring the dog. If he's going too fast, he's not accurately able to assess the odors, what he's encountered. Um, and sometimes the dog that you have might not be the right dog for you. If you've got a fast dog and you can't keep up with them, you might need to swap them out or figure out you're going to have to step up your game. Um, pattern all the time, pattern, pattern, pattern. We're big believers in pattern. Um, I've seen through the years that if you came the same pattern repetitively, you come to a room, you got a guy that immediately goes. If you train him to go left, he's going to go left and he's going to run the walls. If he goes right, he's going to go run, run walls. Doesn't whether you go left or right, I'm not going to preach, you know, which is better or not. But repetitive patterns and dogs like knowing what they want them to do. They like repetitive things. They like black and white. They don't deal well in gray. And if he knows that, hey, every time I come in this room, I do this, you're going to get it with less involvement on your own. You know, we discussed that is knowing what's appropriate for him, where he should be spending time, where he should. He might not necessarily recognize that. Oh, like you said, there's a rock against the wall. Can something be underneath it? But he went over the top of it. Well, I don't need him to smell the top of it. I can see there's nothing on top of it. I need him to sniff what's behind him underneath. So his nose has got to get there. And if he doesn't do it, then I've got to get him to it. Um, you know, the, the four things are, are, are huge. Those are you know, leash him, leash control, leash control. Um, you know, you can annoy a dog. If you're running him on a leash, you can't control the, your leash in and out, and you're getting it underneath his legs, and he's getting tangled up, and you have to stop, and, you know, re- reconfigure yourself. You're annoying. You can be annoying to the animal and annoying to the person watching. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it, we both <laughs> know that from watching canine teams. We're like, can you just fix your leash, damn it? It, it is sometimes very brutal to watch the uh, struggles of uh, leash manipulation and leash management. Um, and just like you said, that's another thing I should probably add. Maybe it's the five P's pressure, uh, pressure with the leash, pressure with the body. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll bring up the sport world yet again. They may not do a lot of presentations, but wow, there is a ton of body pressure uh, that's, that's utilized. Um, extensively. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, sometimes I've had these conversations with them and I've said, just out of curiosity, you, you don't want to present something yet. You will kind of position or move your body or use your body to push a dog into, uh, what you want checked. What, what's the difference, you know, and then there's various reasons to it. Um, but I just found it unique that in one aspect, there's heavy body pressure, um, that caused that, that, or, or again, because dogs are so good at reading body language that they interpreted as I'm going to use my body to kind of help the dog go this area or search this, the dog interprets it as, Oh, you want something from me. Here you go. Um, so it's a slippery slope to kind of go down depending on what it is you do, just like it is with presentations. You know, the other side of that is, is excessive presentations or excessively presenting a specific spot, uh, can elect a, a, a behavior as well. So it, it's, it's being, it's, you know, at the end of the day, I always say to everybody, 
train the dog in front of you. They're not all the same. They're very, you know, they're just like us. They have unique personalities. There's broad strokes that we work within. But then the better you know that particular dog, you're going to figure out what works. Just like you said, the pace. Well, this dog's going to search at this pace. This other dog, trained the same way, searches at this pace instead of that. So it's it's as much as people want like that blueprint style of uh, training and methodology at the end of the day, it's, you can have some, like we just keep bringing up the, the pillars to what you do, but you have to have the flexibility to train that particular dog in front of you. And if you do that, you'll find the successes, uh, when working that dog. And then, you know, sometimes, you know, those tools that worked with that dog, whether it be your next dog or somebody else's dog you're helping out with, some of those tools will work and some of them won't. And that's what helps you kind of evolve as a detection dog handler, which, you know, for you having a business, this kind of goes in now. My next question is you sell dogs and by selling dogs, both untrained, trained and so forth. How, how has it been? Um, you know, when, when I, one of the, I'm getting out of here is, teach, train, test kind of concept. There's the teaching phase, then there's the training phase, and then there's a testing phase. And a lot of times, uh, people want to go from that teaching to that testing. And when the testing doesn't work out, they want to blame the dog. And as a vendor, uh, this is something that we see because they'll want to bring the dog back and go, it doesn't work. And very quickly, uh, we can look at something and go, well, yeah, y- y- there's n- there hasn't been enough time to create, there wasn't been any teaching to build that skill set, which is why during the testing, you're failing. Talk about a little bit about that and what you've seen and from your perspective. Well, it, it's, a, it's a constant even whether in a, a brand new handler on a handler course or maintenance training with someone that's been doing for years, they constantly have to remind them, hey, this is training, not testing. Um, and so when training, we have a plan. We don't just do stuff. Well, oh, let's see what happens. I wonder if it'll find this. Well, then that's testing and that's not training, right? So training, we should go, okay, let's try and see if it'll do this. If it does this, then great. If it doesn't, then what's our next step to train appropriately? So yeah, there's a lot of, and it's really common um, when guys go back, especially from a small agency, if they're by themselves, or if you work by yourself or even in the sport where you train by yourself to give somebody something and say, Hey, hide this for me without telling them what you want to accomplish. And it immediately goes, becomes a test. Well, I wonder if you can find it 10 feet high in the ceiling fan in the center of the room. Well, that's a test. You're not training me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's super important. The, The piece you just brought back about pressure is, is I think is a very pertinent point. Um, because we can pressure the dog through body movement and for teaching pattern, uh, for teaching cars. As we're coming down the side of a car and you're approaching the front corner, you know the dog's going to keep going straight. So if you beat him to the corner with body placement and he forces him to make the 90-degree corner, and you do that enough times, pretty soon he learns how to square corners instead of always having to shoot past and circle and span or it's reverse back or tap back or whatever you want to call it. There's a myriad of techniques to do it. But through body pressure and leash pressure, body pressure, I think, is better than the leash pressure, personally. Yeah, no. And yeah, that's, you know, it's like just bringing up relative to the dog. You know, some dogs can't handle, yeah, any kind of leash pressure too much one way or the other. Or the opposite side of that is the the body pressure is too much, you know, uh, being that close or what have you. Yeah. But yeah, the, the testing and training and teaching is 
you know, we, we teach, but then we have to prove what we've taught by a training. Then once we're solid, our training is solid, then we can worry about testing. But there's a huge difference between the two. And I think a lot of people's, a lot of guys, a lot of, a lot of handlers revert to the testing mode when they should just be training. And there's nothing wrong with training on knowing where things are. You know, you can't always constantly do unknowns, unknowns, unknowns all the time. They have value, yes. You have to do that. But I, but I think there's a, there's a big over underemphasis on that. For sure. And it's human nature, our competitive side or our side of wanting to see the dog do this or do that sometimes drives individuals to go, oh, you know, even though I'm in the uh, teach phase, I see that my dog can do this. So let's go jump from this step to this step, which is now a testing phase and going, oh, this this is what I this is what we got. Um, I, and then all of a sudden they stay with that and they think it was successful. And then lo and behold, after X amount of repetitions, what have you, the wheels kind of come off and we forgot that we didn't spend all the time available uh, to really teach that skill set. So one of the things, you know, I, I harp on a lot and those that follow me on social media and so forth see that I spend a lot of time in the foundational phase because the stronger that that is, the easier those next phases become. And, you know, the foundation goes into that training and then that training, you know, with lots of repetitions in time and again, varies per dog and types of dogs and so forth leads us to when we do test or want to proof the dog, we can see much better results. And but it requires patience, which is should be the next P in there that uh, pretty much. Every dog handler and trainer, including myself, uh, lack a lot of times. I'm bad at times when it comes to uh, patience. I want to see progress or I want to, you know, have this happen. And next thing you know, I've, you know, one of the other trainers I'll work with will look at me like, really, you're going to do this now? You teach the opposite of this. What are you doing? And, you know. Yeah, uh, it happens to me a lot. There's times where I'm just getting frustrated with a dog and Laura walks up and says, "Um, you just need to step away and let me handle that dog. And there's, there's some dogs that your personalities doesn't get along with, some dogs you just don't like. But, you know, when you're speaking about the foundations, foundations are super important because under stress, whether this can be a variety of things, we always revert to our foundations. You can teach all kinds of complicated behavior, but stress, whether it's people watching you, the time in a sport competition, uh, worrying about wanting to place well, wanting to pass a certification under stress, we fall back on what we first learned. And so the foundation has to be super, super stable. Well, yeah, for sure. No, and, and that you brought up a great point, which is stress. Stress is cumulative. And whether it's stress on the dog or stress on the handler, which, you know, usually comes out because the dog can interpret that, uh, is something that we have to pay attention to because, uh, we can avoid that by being patient and taking the time that's necessary to teach whatever task we're in. And, you know, just like you said, sometimes it requires just walking away, just saying, you know, I need a break, uh, or somebody else who is, you know, better adapted that at that time to work that dog, do it. You know, I'm just like you, I have, you know, for me, Krista is the other one I work with and she will look at something and go, I'll take it, you know, and it, it needs that personality versus mine in that moment. Um, so and I, the funny part is I've been in the other shoes or I've done it to her and 
or other trainers I've worked with and say, hey, I'll, I'll take a dog for you and I'll go do it. Um, yeah, but- it happens. And, you know, the important thing for people to understand or I think they hopefully don't lose sight of is the fact that probably any mistake they have made, you and I have probably made it and made it worse through the years. And there's really nothing they can do that we haven't done ourselves. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's one of the first things I talk about is I'm like, look, you know, I can relate to you guys because – you know, you probably haven't done half the mistakes I've already done. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I still at times will look at, you know, or I'll see training going on and I'm like, I'll think back to, uh, some other instance. And I'm like, man, if I, if I just at that point did what I'm doing now with another dog at, you know, from years ago, how much better I would have been. But, you know, sometimes as we, we have to learn, and learning sometimes requires making mistakes. And I talk about it a lot of times, you know, uh, one of the re- other podcasts I did was the value of failure. You know, we have to fail at something. So that way uh, we know what that's like. We are prepared for it moving forward. And sometimes we then know how to avoid that failure in the future by experiencing what we went through there. So it, it has its value, but doesn't mean it's any less frustrating when we're going through it. <laughs> no, no. And but we fall back on your foundation when things are falling apart is what's going to carry you through. I mean, I have several incidents I share with my people. The things that I did were looked like it was going to be a total failure and you go, okay, wait, stop. Let's go back to foundation again. And you turn out to be more successful when you have a critical match. Yep. I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show. One of the new sponsors here at canines talking sense it's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find? And it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, As with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25.
Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordK9.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at TacticalDirectionalK9.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel. It has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com, or like I said, go to fordk9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, FordK9.com. The you know, kind of going into uh, the patient's part. Sometimes to me, it's been sometimes you know a dog breed working with particular breeds and so forth. And on that, being vendors, you know, we've seen all different types of dog breeds. So I kind of wanted to ask you first, I wanted to ask you this question, because I know this has to be the million dollar question. What's, <laughs> what's the definition of a green dog? <laughs> that has changed through the years. <laughs> yeah, that is for sure. You know, used to be a green dog was just he showed the particular attributes that he wanted. He hunts and he seems to be environmentally stable and I can take it from there. And suddenly now a green dog has to search rooms and he has to search vehicles and he has to jump up on unstable surfaces. And the, the standards to what we apply a green dog to in detection work is now very similar to what it used to be 10 years ago for a green patrol dog. Yeah. It had a dog that did a, you know, showed good courage and showed good drive. 
And yep, that's right. That's a green dog. But now someone comes looking by a patrol dog. They say they want a green dog. He's got to do obedience. He's got to bite sleeves and he's got to out. And the expectations for green dogs keep going up and up and up. Yep. But then people wonder why the prices keep going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is the amount of prep time that goes into it. If anybody seriously thinks that uh, any type of dog can instinctive, that it's instinctive and natural for him to run around a building and search a building for an object is instinctive and natural. I, I sorry, I disagree with that wholeheartedly. We have to teach them how to do that. What they do outside is not immediately carry over to the inside. Correct. Um, you know, whether you say it's genetically based or it's learning based, I, you know, I don't think we want to go into that argument or go down that road. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, it, it's it's taught behavior. I mean, we take we teach them from square one to how to search around a room, and then you just start hiding it. And we do hunt first before we do any odor. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want them to go crazy hunting, and then adding odor is the easy part. Yeah. Um, but no. I think what's important, maybe in this line for even for the sport people as well as you know the people that have actually done this for a living and there's plenty of people out here that are have done it professionally for a living that want to go you know take you where you want to go and i think you need to focus people need to focus on that a little bit more yeah um dog training is 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 dog training and then operational training is operational training No, it's it's a very distinct difference between the two for sure. And a lot of times, uh, you know, there's some cool exercises to go do or some some scenarios to run the dog teams through. And that's but that's operational. And, you know, in this actually has come up more recently with me when I've been discussing certification standards uh, with with people and, and some of the and how the certifications now are starting to evolve. And there's a difference between. You know, does the dog know odor? And then can the handler and the dog work together in an operational environment? And both those can be tested separately. You know, for example, you know, many hear me talk about the odor recognition testing, and that's exactly what it is. Does the dog know odor in the presence of non-target odors? And can it successfully tell you? Yep. Okay, these are good. Okay, good. Now I know your dog knows odor on a baseline standard. Okay. So now let's whatever you're, you know, some team bomb dogs, drug dogs, the operational environment is going to be different in some cases. But we're going to test your ability to find or tell us nothing is here in various types of search venues that match what you do for real versus where it's been for many years where we try to kind of combine the two things together. It's like, okay, put all the odors out in this environment, put all the odors out in this environment and so on and so forth. And that's just the way it had always been. But we're, we're evolving to go, okay. Understanding or odor recognition is here, and then the team and the evaluation of how the team works is in this category. And it's in and many, it's actually easier when we approach it that way versus trying to jumble it all together. But you know, like you said, there's a whole other conversations we can go into about us as humans and habits and what we like and what we used to and what we train for versus really what has to be done. Many people will train. Or, or polish up just before a certification to the certification standard versus, you know, uh, anything else. So having that uh, uh, ability to separate and look at things and test them accordingly is really kind of one of the things that I you know, already know is changing for the better for all of us, you know. Oh, I agree. I'm, I'm starting to question why do we have to do, say, a 
narcotics dog and we're going to make him show us operation in all four areas say we want him you have to demonstrate your proficiency in buildings and vehicles and luggage parcels and open area and that's fine and great but why do they all have to be done all at the same time in one day if you could demonstrate to me on day you know if i'm doing a, a, a four week long class and in week three you successfully demonstrated me repetitively that you can search 10 15 20 vehicles correctly then why do on the last day do i have to have you do it for me again i don't i'm not i'm not sure i, I understand the concept of that um the other thing i think that's really important um to touch on is we focus so much on the dog's ability to find the odor where the real skill comes from the handler because if the dog's trained properly and he accesses odor, the handler doesn't have to do anything. But the skill set that's necessary is to be able to say, I searched this thoroughly, completely, and accurately, and there is nothing here, rather than, well, I think it's clear. Absolutely. I, I always laugh when the que when they answer or they come out and say, you know, they they have nothing but with a question mark at the end of their statement clear is that a question you know? <laughs> exactly so, so i'm a big believer in spending lots of times on blanks or negatives or whatever you want to call it because the vast majority oh, of the yeah. time you're deploying you're going to be negative searches especially for a bomb dog oh absolutely and, and human remains detection dogs they do a ton of searches with no fines right and i even challenged the drug dog handlers you know and i did a survey on this uh, many months ago and I was asking, you know, how often in your, you know, real world searches do you find something and how often in training do you set up to find something? And just like you pointed out, you know, uh, bomb dogs, uh, human remains detection dogs had very little, um, the, the percentage was super low for real fines, but in training they had a ton of fines. And I'm like, well, then you're automatically skewing the dog to be not prepared for these longer searches with, that yield nothing. But on the drug dog side, it was an average to say, I think it was like 80% of the real world deployments yielded a find of some sort. Uh, and in training, it was 80, 90%. So my thing I wanted to throw out to them was why not if you, if your real world deployments yield numerous finds as a percentage, then your training doesn't need to constantly show tons of finds. Your training should actually show that the dog is very proficient at conducting searches and showing there's nothing there, especially when it's unknown to you that there's nothing there. Because that will bolster your case that when your dog does alert, it's alerting because something's there. But if I took your records for training and I took your deployment records, I could interpret that if I was a uh, attorney and say, well, shit, every time your dog gets out of the car, it finds something, both in training and real world. This dog just open, you know, indicates all the time. So nothing bolsters that that argument that when your dog indicates it's because something is there by also doing, just like you said, numerous searches that yield nothing. And you can successfully interpret that, read your dog and say, nothing's here. And it's not easy to do, but we it has to be done. Especially as if I, as a trainer, can induce in you the belief that there's something in here. Oh, yeah. And there is nothing in there. And the confidence level that you have to be able to say, yeah, no, there's nothing here. And that's what you have to have. Absolutely. Um, whether whether it's sport or, or it's, you know, law enforcement or private security. Oh, yeah. No, in, in the sport world, it's it's gaining some traction. They've, they're incorporating uh, more blank uh, searches earlier on than they used to. So that's a, that's a good sign on, you know, that's the, 
the nice part about in the civilian aspect, things can change faster than it does on the professional aspect. But um, it, it's good to see that uh, more uh, negative searches are going to be part of even the sporting world as much as we say and and do it in the professional world. You know, it was a different survey I did where, you know, I was talking about uh, handlers um, believing when their dogs indicated and reasons why. And it, and it fell back to basically two things in training conducting training that is blind to you and conducting training that had no odor in it. And the professionals did those two things more often than the sport people did. The professionals had more searches that they did that they didn't know what or how many things were present uh, or, or they also did searches that had nothing present. They just did it at a more frequent level than the sport world did. The sport world, you know, set up because a lot of them are, these are, you know, pets too. Not that that uh, working dogs don't view those dogs as a pet in a sense, but anyway, it was, um, the mentality was I want my dog to find something. Finding something is fun and it's rewarding. So therefore, every time we go out, we should find something. What they were missing the mark on was the value of negative, which was you can still search an area, work on that. And if you want to go find something, set up something like a, they do now I see in competitions and I'm seeing more in the human remains world do this too, which is Separate from whatever the search area is, is another like what I call like a warm up area. It's just a smaller search area that has an odor there. So they, they can do it, whether it be um, something by design or whether it be a scent wheel or what have you. But there's something where they can do a find, but it's not part of what is being searched. So if you do your search, you get nothing and you're correct and you feel your dog needs to find something. Well, then go over to this area, whatever it want to be, and do the find that way. But, well, some of the things that we do like tracking, for instance, and marking the appropriate behavior with a reward, you can do it just as well as searching, right? There's, you know, we're teaching the dog to track and the nose is down and it's going good and there's not, we can mark that behavior and reward the behavior for the nose down behavior. We can do the same thing during a search in training. Okay, you're, you're searching your nose, your closed mouth, your deep breathing, you're searching and we can mark and reward the search behavior, not necessarily the find, the different. Yeah, no, for sure. And and that's some of the things that comes up, you know, from time to time is how do we uh, reinforce the right behavior, which is telling you there's nothing there and the dog knows it can be still reinforcing uh, to be correct in the absence of odor. And there's 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 a couple different ways to go about it. And like you said, there's there's conversations for that. And that's why, yes, you know, there's people there's, like there's us. There's another time yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so with being a dog vendor, um, you know, I'm going to bring up kind of like a, you know, both of us have been through this. You, you, we both been around long enough to remember when the Malinois entered the scene where they had been heavily dominated by German shepherds. So let's say the nineties where all of a sudden the Malinois came into the scene and there was those that knew how to work it, but most of us didn't. Um, and then over years it evolved. And now I would say the Malinois by number, is higher in use in law enforcement military than German Shepherd is now, you know, kind of parallel in detection dog world. I'm seeing, and I'm curious to see if you see the same thing. Uh, pointers are is a you know everything's been dominated by Labrador for a long time. Uh, now I'm seeing the surge or the increase in uh, pointers and the pointing breeds and. Kind of similar to how the Malinois came in, we had to adjust training styles or working styles for the breed. I'm seeing somewhat similar, just totally different reasons within the detection dog world. You know, working a Labrador is not the same thing as working a pointer, and there's various reasons for that. So, 
tell me what you see. Do you see something similar to that? And and how do you how have you been navigating it? Well, well, the, you know, Springers are different than Labs, and GSPs are different than Vislas, and you know, you're you're taking a sight dog and trying to do a scent exercise. Um, it can it can be challenging. They seems like the pointers and the those types of field dogs can get objects fixated pretty intensely sometimes. Um, like yeah, it, I I think we're seeing more of those breeds just because the demand is up for what we call floppier dogs in general. So they've got to reach out to other different breeds. There's just not enough Labrador. The demand is increasing, and it's a supply and demand situation. So let's go to German short hair pointers. Let's go to wired hairs. Let's go to Vieslos. Let's go to Springer Spaniels, um, uh, duck tollers. Uh, it doesn't really much matter. But, yeah, they all have to train a little bit different. Part of the thing, the hard part of the sporting girl world is getting out of training methodologies that were formed and based around German Shepherds and Malinois. Um, you know, we, we, we're, we're training prey drive is not a natural instinct for those where retrieve is if you talk about drive. So we can't train using prey based methodologies and a lot of these dogs, some of them sure, but not a lot of them. Um, you know, we're, we're testing these sporting breed dogs for grip hardness when they're genetically bred to be soft mouth, not to maul ducks and geese, but yet we want them in some methodologies. We're still requiring these dogs to retrieve pipe and copper pipe and PVC and metal. Well, there's some that do it. Yes. But does possession equate to hunting? I don't think I agree with that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you're right. And, and that's, you know, very, again, very similar to what was done back in the nineties when there was that, uh, evolution of types of dogs to be used just, just for the exact same reasons. There wasn't enough German Shepherds. The quality of German Shepherds were changing. Um, the market itself was changing. The demand was surging. And we're seeing that in detection dog world. So now we're seeing more of the alternative to what would, would be typical, the Labrador. And we're seeing, like you said, the other sporting breeds and hunting breeds. And you, and you brought in a very significant uh, aspect there, which was, um, you know, Yes, I agree, and and I I sell a lot of pointers. I probably sell more pointers than I do any other breeds currently right now, just because of what's available. And it takes it is screening differently, just like you just said. I I don't screen a pointer the same way I screen a Labrador, um, and you know, pointers by you know they're predisposed due to their breeding and so forth are very airborne scent type dogs, yet there's the sight part of it too. And if this is the catch 22 and, and so the, I'll just tell you from my point of view, what I'm seeing, you know, some, not only because of demand, but I know some like the pointing breeds because what's already built into them, a fantastic indication. Once you make that connection to what it is that they're looking for, um, because so many handlers struggle with the ability to the indicate well one they get so focused on indication and then that becomes almost priority over odor um but then the having a dog that can basically have an idiot proof indication becomes very appealing to us that work you know dogs or handlers because they're like well my dog's doing this there's got to be something there and you know we can debate them on all those kind of things too why that happens but Generally speaking, 
it does have an appeal, you know, that I, and I totally see it and I get it. And I even manipulate that for myself as a vendor is, especially if the dog's been trained properly, the indication is almost handler idiot proof kind of thing where if this sucker's doing this, it's because there's something there, you know, but I think with Labrador's alert and indication are clearly distinct from each other, where it is in the pointing breeds. A lot of times you just, all of a sudden you just get an indication. It's like, well, uh, I, I, I don't see all these things we used to talk about, about, you know, ears becoming erect and increased respiration, tail wagging. You, they just all of a sudden lock up and you're like, whoa, what just, what just happened here? Yeah, no, you're um, right. It's, that, that takes some getting used to. <laughs> and it's, you, you, you know, it's so funny you said that because it's, I see it obviously frequently with the pointers that I work and train that uh, those pre-alert behaviors uh, may not be as distinct as they are with, like, say, a Labrador that kind of does, like, you know, the rapid breathing and the tail wag and then all this other stuff that happens. Just like you said, the pointer will be working, working, all of a sudden stop. And you're yep. like, oh, okay, <laughs> they, they're on odor. And oh, okay, that's it. Yeah. yeah, so it does. So on the one hand, the indication is super easy for that handler to read. The other hand, though, all the pre-tells before that kind of went away because it goes from zero to indication like that. And then the uh, where the other ones, uh, you might see a lot of those changes of behavior and so on that are, you know, unique to that dog that does this. And the handlers are better at articulating that. And then they see the indication. So it's, it's as we pour sand from one glass to the other glass, it's always kind of, you know, we got to find that middle ground sometimes and, and, and work through it. But yeah, it was just an interesting thing that I've, you know, seen. And I kind of laughed to myself looking back at the parallels of the uh, evolution on the patrol dog side from breed change like they went through, it's some of the similarities we're seeing in detection dogs now too. And I'm in a unique area, as you know, the, uh, the Vegas area is actually very heavy with, uh, springers, you know, probably I would, and you tell me if I, cause you got a better, you know, uh, fingerprint on this than I do, or your finger on the pulse on this than I do. I would venture to say we are probably the strongest in the let's say per capita of springers in an area that I I can't think of any place else that I know of that were nearly all of the detection dogs are springers with the exception of some, some few, but have you seen that anywhere else other than let's say Canada and Europe and so forth, but in the United States, have you no, seen me? Yeah. Not in the Canada. There's a couple department guys I know back East that are, that are big into springers, but yeah, there's that particular geographic area where you are is, is pretty heavy in springers. Um, yeah, I love those little guys. They're hard to find, but yeah, no, for sure. But then again, for bomb work, I don't want a springer; he's too small. Yeah, I just had that conversation with one of the agencies that I'm providing dogs for right now. Was I'm like, you guys cover a lot of land, you know? A little springer isn't going to, you know, probably. And again, our environment is so unique out here in Vegas too—the heat and everything else. So. I was like, nothing for nothing for your handlers and so forth. You want to consider working with something like, uh, it's got a little bit more, cover more ground with less effort kind of thing. Uh, well, plus, plus the taller. I mean, yes, you know, the guys, yes. They, they, they get bomb dogs for me for doing cars. They want big, tall dogs because they can hit trunk engines and door seams without having to jump up. Public venues, they can hit trash cans and the tops of trash cans and water fountains and counters without having to be jumped up every time you encounter one. Um, you know, I've got guys, agencies that 
uh, we provide dogs for that do large amounts of passenger screening for money and drugs. They want big, tall dogs because people who body pack and dope and money mm-hmm. generally waste an upper thigh. So I don't want a little dog that's sniffing ankles. I want a dog that's head high into the waist area. Yeah. No, and you bring up a good point too. It's kind of like I've, you know, as I've watched HR dogs more and more, particularly I would say crime scene related HR dogs because, um, I like the Springers for that because it's it's typically low to the ground, blood spatter, other items of evidence, uh, whether it be indoors, outdoors. I've seen Springers do really, really good at that, that type of work. Not that the other ones don't, but I'm just saying I've just seen that's a good little niche for a Springer. Yeah, because a lot of times Springers are nose down anyway. They're lower to the ground. And they cover, yeah, that's a good little place for them. That and dope work, you bet. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So with the, like we talked about, the change in the detection dog industry and some of the things that we've seen that's just been really nice to watch evolve, where do you, what's some of the things that you continue to wish or or as a vendor, let's say, or somebody who deals with dogs, uh, how do you see the, our progression going, let's say, over the next, you know, 10 years? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I <laughs> got you on that one. Yeah, because if you asked me 10 years ago, if I could have predicted where we are today, I don't think anybody could have predicted where we are today <laughs> 10 years ago. Um, you know, if someone had told me back in 1986 when, you know, the Air Force taught me how to do this, that someday you could do this for a living and play with dogs and, and, and be able to get paid and, and what is it? Yeah, that's that's crazy. That's not possible. It's just not possible. Um, you know, the pockets of dog vendors was very small. Um, but the use of dog... I, I think I see the expansion might be drifting off into the medical realm. Yes. You know, the dog doing the COVID studies. Um, we have dogs, you know, we have placed some dogs on a study for that. Um, between cancer and God only knows what else. Um, also, I think um, diseases, for instance, um, the hoof and mouth disease, that there, there's a swine flu that's affecting pigs in China that, we need to stop from getting over here. Um, the invasive muscles on the boats mm-hmm. crossing state lines. I think going into biologicals is probably the next big direction. Yep. You're exactly the same thing I was thinking. The medical, biological, and conservation detection dogs are fields that are growing quickly. And I have a feeling with, especially obviously in the side of the United States that we're both on, the decriminalization of narcotics Um is going to be a driving factor for some, some of that change that goes on and the type of detection dogs increasing in, you know, usage or, uh, you know, being, um, even for criminal cases, you know, conservation and, and biological for, for stuff. small, for smaller agencies. I don't know that there's going to be much benefit in having a drug dog anymore when you've got things decrimmed and legalized. Oh, yeah. I think there's always going to be a need for them at a major transportation level at federal and state level. Um, you know, but if but you know your average police department that doesn't sit on a major state route or an interstate highway, I, yeah, I don't know. But then there's always schools. Um, you know, I had agencies that were talking about getting rid of their drug dogs when marijuana was legalized, and pounds came together, and they decided it was more important to keep the marijuana dogs in the schools and keep it out of the high schools and junior high schools and grade schools than worry about a guy running down the street. So they kept their marijuana trade dogs. Yep. Um, uh, maybe that might turn into a more private trend. Fine, the schools, are, you know, police agencies aren't going to be doing that, and you're going to delve more into contraband dogs that find guns, alcohol, and drugs. Yeah. Um, for places, workplaces, and schools. 
that might be there might be an increase of that. I'm not sure, but I think the biologicals is is going to be the next big one. Yeah, mean, but. without a doubt, especially within some of the, um, you know, we both seen the growth of fishing game canine programs change. Before it was just you know the few that existed. I'm seeing more and more and more. And that's because uh, it's you know it's law enforcement. You know, there's state agencies. Um, they're starting to direct those resources into that, uh, type of, uh, skill set for dogs because it's helping them become more efficient at, you know, investigating crime. And, uh, like you said, or preventing, uh, you know, cross-contamination of, you know, invasive species and things like that. So yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you're talking about people with dogs that are finding mold in citrus orchards and, um, you know, it's, the, the net's pretty large for stuff like that. And I think it's only going to get bigger. Um, I think as more and more people, the wildlife conservation dogs and either state fishing game agencies or whatever is, you know, the, the size and scope of poaching and international trade and wildlife is huge. And unless you actually sit down and look at it and talk to these people, it's, it's, it'll blow your mind away how much um, bears parts go into the far East and things like that. It's, it's, it's amazing. Oh yeah. No, without a doubt. And there's the hope in me too, is that we as a detection dog community become more specialized versus so broad versus, you know, like, you know, I'll just use HR again, you know, oh, my HR dog does not only this, it searches, you know, vast, you know, areas like for a person, it's more of like a recovery mission than a, uh, uh, than a rescue mission. But then that same dog that does recovery type work is also then used for crime scene where, you know, within, let's say, our European counterparts uh, have their dogs far more specialized. And it makes it creates better credibility, you know, when when looked at, especially legally, that and it's hard even as a as a handler and a trainer to train so many different ways of that skill set. When then if you can hone it down to my dog does this and it does this very well that's again efficiency for us and, and and betters to me the industry when we talk about detection dogs versus my dog does you know all these different things well you know you're right there las vegas metro has always been the prime example of you know i have a patrol dog and i have a detection dog yep and you know why you can afford it i mean if you got brain cancer i don't want to go see my general practitioner that's 90 years old i'd certainly want to see a brain specialist um <laughs> specialization is but of course, specialization costs more money. But oh yeah, and, and but there's value to that. Like we said, the specialist. I don't want my heart surgeon working on my brain. <laughs> yeah, they're they're exactly. both they're both doctors, and I I respect that. But I really want the specialist to to do that. And that's you know, and as as the pendulum moves around in our detection dog world, and more science comes in, I think these things will start to happen. But it's it's fun to have these conversations now, and then we, you know, like you said, in ten years from now, we can go, oh, that was either spot on, or man, we were way off base with that one. Yeah, well, it's like I, I bring this up. They just did a, a seizure of the Chinese authorities. They seized twelve tons of beaver penises that were smuggled from Canada. Wow. <laughs> 400,000 to 600 beavers had to be killed to produce 12.7 tons of beaver penis. Wow. I mean, so, I know. You, you so, never know. Yeah, you never know. You just, you just never know when it comes to animal parts. God. <laughs> yep, yep. You, you, it, it, and it's crazy. It's, it's you know, stuff like that. It's so unique and so different, you know. 
uh, as you train one dog to do this, well then, oh crap, now we got another, and it falls under that same category, conservation or, or that wildlife protection. And then do you add this odor to this dog? It does, you know, bear gallbladder or, you know, things like that. Yeah. So that, that was worth $24 million. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of, that's a lot of illegally killed beavers. Um, you know, and it happens with, with deer and elk and black bears and it's huge. Oh yeah. No, there's all kinds of stuff. And, and it's, and it's like you said, you brought the muscles up. That's another big one. I know probably, uh, particularly within your area, uh, cause you're near a coast where there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, water and things that happen and so on and so forth, where these kind of things, um, uh, you know, have a, get used a lot more than let's say, uh, Oklahoma or whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, wherever they like, I know, like up here, if you cross into Montana, Idaho, Washington, you got to pull over, and your boat's got to be searched for for zebra mussels. Same thing going to California. Yeah. And out of California, I think Nevada might be part of it too. I'm not sure, but sure. Um, you know, dog, you certainly clear a bunch of cars, boats on trailers with a dog way faster than a human in a mirror. Um, again, it's back to again, it's back to efficiency, right? Yep. Which we're back around again. <laughs> Search patterns. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so for our listeners that want to find you or view your website, how do they do that? Where do they go? All that kind of good stuff. Uh, you can find us on the internet at www.pacificcoast, the letter K, number nine, dot com. Um, we have a Facebook page for Pacific Coast K9, which doesn't get updated nearly enough because I'm not really good with social media and lawyers are pretty much too busy doing other things. So we try to keep it updated, but we're not. Um, you can reach me by my cell phone, 360-410-8436 or email is Ken at Pacific coast, letter K number com. Well, good. Do you have any, you know, are you doing any classes coming up? You got any seminars you're going out to from like January on? Seminars seem pretty slow. It looks like we're getting ready to start a detection dog handler class mid-January. Um, a couple bomb dogs are going out in February and March. So it's things are starting to pick up. This last half of this 2020 has been a slow time, but we, we've just been down in numbers. But hopefully things will get turned around and things start picking up again as the world opens up. We've had a lot of classes canceled because agencies will not send the handlers out of state. Um you know, I just had a guy, I had a class, two-week class starting January 4th, and just got told last week that suddenly his agency said, yeah, you're not allowed to leave the state. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, you know, you know, discuss stuff, toss ideas back and forth, and let people just kind of hear two guys do this detection dog stuff, you know, have a conversation and maybe, you know, we help people through these kind of conversations. But also, like I said, it's a conversation where now they also can have another resource such as yourself to reach out to. So thank you for spending the time and doing that with oh, me. I, I appreciate you for asking me to be here. The time's gone by pretty fast and yeah, I'll, I'll answer emails and texts and phone calls. I might not get, might not answer the phone the first ring, but I will get back to you. If someone wants some help with something, happy to help. We're all in this together. Um, and it's amazing to see where we, how far we've gone in 
close to 20 years, Cameron, because I remember when I bought my first dog from you. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's so crazy. I sit back and think to myself, some of the some of the stuff for me, as you know, for me, it's been full circle. I went from having a business, then getting into the, the world as a, a cop and dog handler and then in the contracting world and so forth. And here I am right back at the business side again. So, you know, you've been there that long to watch the, all of that happen. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you have a good new year. Uh, happy new year. And we'll stay in touch. Thanks again. Absolutely. Take care, Ken. 